Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Mind for Life podcast. My name is Jeff Bogazic, and I am so, so glad that you have chosen to join me today for this podcast where I'm going to be talking about a topic that is of great interest to me, and it is the topic coping with information glut. Information glut is the situation we find ourselves in here in a technological society where there is an overabundance of information, um, an overload, if you will, of information to the points that we simply don't have the ability as human beings to process it. And in this podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about the background of that situation, the background of the topic, and go into some things that we can do um, as human beings living on this planet, living its environment to kind of deal with it, cope with it. And so I hope you stick around for that. Before I get into the topic, however, I do want to make you aware of a free giveaway that we have on our website. You can find it on the web page for this podcast, which is mindforlife.org forward slash 062. And again, uh, when people visit our website, a lot of traffic goes to an article that I've written called A Nice Person's Guide to Becoming More Assertive. Um, just because I think people struggle sometimes with conflict and conflict resolution and conflict management, how to approach those conversations with skill and with confidence. And so we've created a cheat sheet on how you can do that that goes through a five-step process that gives you the exact words to say so that you can come into those difficult conversations with confidence and skill and, and will hopefully enable you to have better conversations and to be able to resolve conflicts and issues that you have with the people in your life that are important to you and to, to maintain those relationships. So you can check that out, mindforlife.com org forward slash zero six two. So one of the things I like to do on this podcast is share just things that are interesting to me that have helped me to kind of like make better sense of the world around me that have helped me to understand the world have helped me to think better myself to have better perceptions of what's going on and then ultimately to make better decisions and choices and live a better life and Um, one of those is this idea of information glut. And before I get into that topic, let me just tell you a little bit about the background of where this topic comes from. Uh, when I started my PhD program, um, 11 years ago now, it was uh, at Duquesne University. It was a PhD in rhetoric. So if you don't know what that is, just do a Google search. Basically, it's about persuasive communication. Um, and that program was a communication program. And so this is at Duquesne University. If you're looking for a program in com- communication, I highly recommend that program. It was one of the best times of my life going through it. Enjoyed so much the learning, uh, all of the things that go in. But as you're going through a PhD program, at least in my PhD program, there was um, there's multiple aspects to the program. If you've never thought about a PhD program and you're thinking about one before, at least here at Duquesne, there was multiple aspects to it. Uh, the first is the coursework. So you had to do courses. There was three years of courses um, for me. And then you had to pick 
what your concentrations were going to be. So at the end of the coursework, there was also a reading list that we had to read uh, outside of what the books that you had to read for the courses. Each one of those courses probably gave you one book a week that you had to read and you had to make presentations and write up articles and do papers for every one of those courses. You know, and this, the papers were kind of like, uh, had to be like a 25 page page, you know, fully sourced paper that you're going to hopefully at some point turn into a publication or for an article or something of that nature. But you would do this coursework then after, after, and on top of that, there was a reading list that included maybe another hundred books or so that you had to read over the course of your time there. And then you had to write up a one page kind of like summary of what that book was about, what were the major metaphors and things of that nature that were included in that book. Another part of my program was that you had to have a foreign language component. So you either in my program had to be proficient in two languages, two foreign languages. You had to be fluent in one foreign language, or you had to be proficient in one foreign language and take phenomenology, which is, you know, a specific branch of philosophy. Um, I chose to do one language proficiency and phenomenology and really enjoyed that was introduced into the concept of phenomenology, which is maybe something we'll talk about on this podcast at a different time. And then after all of that was done, you had to write your comprehensive exams. So the comprehensive exams were two days. Um, it was a Friday and a Saturday and they give you, um, three hours to write, and four questions. So you would get from, I think it was nine to 12, uh, 10, 11, 12, three hours to write on one question. They give you four questions. Then that you take an hour for break. And then from one to four, you wrote the second question. Then on Saturday, it was the same thing. So one question, two questions, three questions, four questions. And in those questions, you had to write on, uh, there was the basic questions that were part of the program. And then on Friday were the basic questions part of the program. On Saturday were the questions of your concentrations. And so you had to pick concentrations. And at the time I was in that program, there were uh, four concentrations. You had to pick two. One of them was the philosophy of communication. Another one was integrated marketing communication. Um, another one was the interpersonal and organizational communication. And the fourth one was the rhetoric of technology. And so when I was going into that program, I was very much interested in interpersonal and organizational communication. And then at the time I thought, boy, uh, integrated marketing and communication was a great concentration as well. And so I started taking the courses for um, IMC and took the courses for interpersonal organizational uh, but I took one course um, maybe halfway through my program. Uh, it was called the Rhetoric of Technology. And that really shifted my interests, really my research interests. Um, I had taken all the coursework for IMC, but then I thought, boy, I want to change my concentration to the Rhetoric of Technology. And it was in that course I was introduced to this field of media ecology. At the time, I had never heard of that. And I was like, boy, that is an interesting concept, media ecology. And then I, so I changed my concentration to media ecology or it was the rhetoric of technology and ended up writing my questions on interpersonal organizational, which included basically, you know, a, um, 
a background of the scholarship. The, 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 the question was about a background of the scholars and the scholarship and inter, in interpersonal communication, organizational communication, who said what, who are the main players, you know, what did they say, what were their theories, blah, blah, blah. And then the other one was media ecology. So had to write for three hours on who are the scholars, what are the ideas, what are the major, major metaphors in media ecology, and kind of put together this history of the entire field. So uh, that was an interest to me. And it was in that part of my studies where I was introduced to this concept of information glut. Um, if you don't understand or don't know, media ecology is the study of media as environments. And the scholars in there look at that ecological metaphor for a media or a medium. And they often will say a technology is a medium, right? Any technology is a medium. And when we talk about technology, we're not just talking about a cell phone or a computer. We're talking about things like the printing press or the telegraph or the automobile. Uh, all of these are technologies. And the idea with an ecology um, that very much translate to this mediated environment, if you can use that terminology, is that the introduction of a new technology is not simply additive. In other words, like an environment, you don't introduce a new species and think you just have a new, uh, the same environment with a new species. No, the species introduction transforms the environment um, completely, and it's an entirely new environment. Uh, so with media ecology, think, for example, you when you introduce the printing press to, you know, Europe at the time, you don't just have, and this is, this is written by um, one of the media ecology scholars. This is, this is their direct quote, probably not word for word, but you don't just have Europe plus the printing press. You have an entirely different Europe because what the printing press did is it transformed the entire continent and the entire world. Just one example, and this was, you know, part of the, you get the Reformation, um, the Protestant Reformation, and the entire authority structure of the church, of the Catholic Church, was changed because of the printing press. You know, Martin Luther is the one that used the printing press to put 95 theses and get that out to everyone and put the Bible on everybody's kitchen table, and it literally transformed Europe and changed the entire system. So there are some of these revolutionary technologies that come into our environment and transform the entirety of the system, the printing press being one, the radio being another, uh, the television being one, the book you know, the alphabet or um, chirography, the ability to write and put stuff down on paper, you know, that transformed the environment as well. And so now we have some of these new digital, digital technologies that are transforming the environment. We're living through an environmental seismic shift in our environment, right? A transformation of our environment as a result of some of the digital technologies that we currently have as well. And so... Um, this is where you get this idea of 
of information glut, and it comes out of the work of Neil Postman. If he wrote a book called Technopoly, highly recommend that you read it if you're interested in this. And one of the things that Postman was concerned about, and he wrote also another book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, and really that book was about what was the uh, change when you introduced the television. You know, what did the television do to, for example, political discourse in our country? You know, in Postman's comments in there, something to the effect of that the television really made entertainment the end. And so um, political debates that were not entertaining just got turned off. <laughs> Um, and in a political debate, it was almost about who was the better entertainer, who was the better movie star. And, you know, we've seen that transition now that political debates are no longer about the issues. And there's no, not enough time on a political debate stage for 12 people to basically rattle off all of their policies and their thoughts on, for example, foreign relations with China. Um, those debates are about can I get the one liner gotcha that gives me the news headlines for the next day and really gets my attention out there and kind of puts my my face and my name out there. And so, you know, th those debates have changed from debates on policy and debates on issues to more of who can be the better entertainer, who can get the gotcha moment. And that's that's the things that are driving what what we have as our presidents and our leaders in this country, unfortunately. And Postman's comment was, that's a result of TV. That's a result of the introduction of the television, is that everything became about entertainment. And additionally, you can see that in the economic models for television today, right? If your show does not entertain, if your show does not capture attention, you and, and the ratings that go along with that, you don't get the money and your show eventually goes away. And if your station does not capture ratings, you lose the money and your station has to fire people or whatever, all of the economics that go on with that, um, with losing money. And so, uh, you know, of course, televisions, uh, stations are, uh, have been and have been forever in this competition for the attention of the TV viewer. Uh, they've been in this competition for what is going to entertain them, what is going to capture their attention and how do we create shows that are going to do that. And we've been through this whole process. Uh, and you can go back and look at the history of TV and go back to all the shows that captured the attention and go back to the Seinfelds and the friends and, you know, the parks and recs and the office and all of those shows that kind of been were historic and captured the attention of people. And then how those networks kind of like, you know, went up and went down based on whether or not they had good hit shows that kind of stood the test of time. The same thing goes for movies. Uh, the same thing goes for things like podcasts, for example, although, you know, for the, for most podcasts, we're not operating based on finances. Uh, we're just operating based on the ability to capture attention. But you also see it, unfortunately, now with like political news shows. Um, kind of an interesting thought is how the economics of television have polarized political talk shows. Uh, it used to be that the big three stations, CBS, NBC, and ABC, you know, held the majority. That was it. That was the only game in town were those three stations. And then Fox came into the equation. It was kind of like that, you know, 
really difficult guys tr just trying to break in. They were playing, playing all of these syndicated TV shows and everything like that. But then you started to have like these cable cable stations that came in. And as those cable stations put on better and better shows or started to capture more and more of an audience, you know, some of those bigger networks who had the monopoly started to lose their funds. Those funds started going to the cable TV shows. And so uh, then what happened with Netflix, right? And the streaming advent, uh, advent, a lot of those viewers and those eyeballs started going to Netflix. And now you have Netflix and Amazon Prime and Apple Plus TV. And now you've got some of these other stations that are creating their own streaming, Paramount Plus and Disney Plus, all in an effort to capture the eyeballs and the attention and ultimately the dollar bills that come with advertising as a result of ratings. So what has this done to political shows, right? It has forced them to mold their show into the image of their viewer. Um, the shows that do the best of reaching their ideal viewer get more ratings and get more money. And so those shows are forced to not just tell the news in an unbiased way. Those shows are forced to tell the news in a way that really kind of gives the red meat, so to speak, to the viewers that they are trying to reach. And so they're forced to become more and more radical and more and more fringe. They're, they're forced to become less moderate and less in the center of the political spectrum and yet move more farther and farther towards the edges because those are the people who are watching those shows and those are the people that are going to give them the ratings and those are the people that are going to give them the money. You know, it's unfortunately that's been the case for political campaigns the whole time is in the primaries. They've got to go farther and farther to the edges to get their base fired up, get them out to vote, get them into the primaries. And then the, the typical uh, strategy has then been, okay, now in the general election, we need to move toward more to the center. So we're shifting our policies or we're shifting our values more towards the center so that we can reach a broader and uh, a broader population and then win the election. Well, the news shows have no incentive to move more and more to the center because the money that they make is far and farther, farther and farther to the edges. And so they're forced to move farther and farther out onto the extremes of whatever the political ideology or political side of the spectrum may be. That's the challenge that we have as a result of an entertainment media. You put the television in there and it literally transforms everything. And think what it's done to us as a culture, right? We're polarized. We're polarized and we think, oh, we're just polarized because of whatever it may be. no. We're polarized because a medium was introduced into our culture 50 years ago, 60, 60 years ago, whenever the TV came in, that started a process of transforming our society into the point that we're at today. The entirety of the structure and the system uh, that goes along with the medium of television has brought us to the point where we're at today, uh, a polarized society. You know, Postman's questions were this. Number one, whenever you introduce a technology, you should think, what is the problem to which this technology is a solution? Um, you know, one of the common 
statements of justification for bringing the internet into the classrooms at the time of President Clinton and Vice President Gore when they were trying to bring uh, internet into all the classrooms is that it's going to bring more information. Postman's comment at the time was, that is not a problem that needs to be solved. <laughs> and he said, we've got more information in books in the libraries of these schools than any student will ever be able to consume in their entire lifetime. We don't need more. In other words, the problem is not really a problem. It was just the problem that those people were using to suggest was the solution. Um, Postman's other comment on that was, whose problem is it? Is it the problem of the federal government to create uh, more information stu to students in the local schools? Or is that the problem of the local school district? Um, is that the problem of the state? You know, and so it was the federal government that started that initiative under President Clinton and, and Vice President Gore. Another question that Postman would pose is, who are the winners and who are the losers? when a technology is put in or introduced. In other words, with every technology, there's a winner and there's a loser. Um, so who are the winners? And then the other side of that is, it is in the winner's interest to tell the losers <laughs> that this is important for them and that this is going to benefit them. And so with technology, with, with television, you know, it's one thing with, with the internet and with some of the platforms that we have today, be it Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, you know, who, who, who really makes the most money out of those things? Who, who's the winner? Who's really winning there? It's the tech lords. Those people are the ones that are making the billions of dollars. But of course, it's in their interest to make us think like these things are benefiting us. And so they spend tons of money on advertising and commercials to show how Facebook or Meta Now or Instagram or Twitter or whatever it may be is making a better life for you. And all of these emotional commercials that come out about how you can connect with your family and blah, 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 blah. You know, that's all in their interest to do that because at the same time, while they're making billions of dollars, the only way they can make billions of dollars is if you put your content out there on their platform for them to sell to their advertisers. They have to make you feel like you're doing something good. So um, that's what they do. Uh, there's always a winner. There's always a loser in Postman's opinion. Number, the next one is this. Um, what are the unintended consequences of a technology? Um, you know, Postman's point was that every technology or every medium is a Faustian bargain. In other words, there's both a blessing and a curse to it. And this is where you get this situation of information glut. What is information glut? The information glut is this. There is so much information out there that we have no ability as human beings to process the knowledge that is available to us. We are literally drowning in information. And the question is, what is that drowning in information doing to us psychologically? What is it doing to us sociologically? And how is that affecting our day-to-day -day lives? 
we seem to just think that more information is better. I mean, obviously, why wouldn't we think that? Well, more information is better. More information is better. And proponents of more information and information junkies often cite this mantra of more knowledge. And they will tell you that if we just had more knowledge, uh, more information, then we can solve the problems that are facing humanity. Now, let me say this. I don't think that more knowledge is necessarily evil, right? Um, And I do think knowledge is important. And I do think that information is important. And I do appreciate more information. But there's another side to it that what is happening with us when there's more information. Um, Number one, I don't think more information, this is personal, but you know, I don't know necessarily that more information is going to solve the problems that we've always dealt with, that humanity has always dealt with for all of time. Problem of hate, the problem of world hunger. Uh, Those are problems that more information can't solve because those are problems of greed and problems of corruption and problems of pride and problems of hate. And more information doesn't fix those problems because those are human problems. Information can provide us with insight, maybe, into some of those problems, but the solution isn't just because, uh, isn't just going to come because we've got more information. Um, so, you that's the that's kind of the other side of information glut. We're sitting in this situation where we're drowning in information. Um, some of the challenges that we have is that we don't know what to do with it. One of the curses, if you will, of more information is that we don't know what's true. And the idea of fake news, right? Well, what's true? Well, it's what's true is what's true based on who you're hearing it from. And we all know that you can turn on a new show every night and hear the exact same situation being described by two people that see it completely differently and have two different interpretations of whatever that event may or may not be. Well, which one is true? Which one is true? What is the true interpretation of that event or whatever it may be? or that policy, or whatever it may be. It happens all the time. You'll get a policy by an administration, for example, and then the Republicans will go out and put on their side of it and say, this is what this policy is, and then the Democrats will go out and put on their side of it and say, but this is what this policy is, and it happens all the time, and it happens no matter what the administration may be or whoever's in power or whatever it may be, whoever's putting out, you're going to get these different perspectives on it, and those are just two of the ones that are there when it comes to politics, but of course, there's more and more interpretations the more and more people that get into it. The problem with information glut, fake news, is we don't know what really is true, Um, We don't know what is really authoritative. Um, Who has authority when it comes to information? Is it a YouTuber? Is it a senator? Is it a president? Is it a scholar? Is it a podcaster? Um, You're hearing me talk about a lot of things. And what, what is it that gives me authority on these issues? You know, is it because I have X amount of followers you know, unfortunately, we're, we're in a, a metrics-driven society where you do have authority because you just have a lot of people that follow you. Well, okay, 
But just because you have a lot of people that follow you doesn't mean you're right or doesn't mean you have a valid perspective on something. Or you, you can be spouting an opinion that's uninformed or informed by certain things and not informed by a totality because nobody has a full totality of information when it comes to something and nobody ever will. So, you know, the idea of authority, um, I think Jordan Peterson talked about the, the problem of perception. You know, what do we see in the world and how do we see it in the world is an issue. And information glut just provides another obstacle to the problem of perception. We don't know what's true. We don't know what's false. We don't know who has authority. You can hear many people just go on Twitter when somebody says something and you'll hear everybody blasting one side and the other side blasting the other side. We don't know necessarily what's authoritative or what's true. So it kind of puts us in maybe a little bit of an existential situation. Um, It maybe gives us a little bit of unease You know, how do we really think about that in our day-to-day lives? How do we really walk through our lives in the situation of information glut where we don't know what's true? Well, what do we do is we typically believe the things that align with our values and beliefs already. This is what is called confirmation bias, right? That when you hear something, um, you only listen to that which confirms what you already believe. And if what you hear goes against what you already believe, you will throw it out as fake news, or you will say that's not true. And that's a challenge that we have, you know, that these, the medium, the media of cable news just fosters that, right? Confirmation bias is fully in effect on all of those shows because those people are only hearing what they already believe. And this is the problem that we do have is that uh, the algorithms of these tech platforms are also designed to give you information that aligns with what you already believe. And the challenge is that you just get stuck in this echo chamber of hearing only the things that you already believe. You're not even... um, presented with information that's different the algorithms of your twitter feed or of your facebook feed or of your whatever it may be are giving you the information that already lines up with what you believe and you're not getting another side Um, you select your own and the algorithms then select it for you and you're hearing what you only want to believe and so that again is another situation where we're, we're more and more polarized because people are not hearing multiple multiple sides of an issue or getting a broader perspective of an issue, but rather are choosing to listen to their own side are being affected by their own confirmation bias and are only, uh, and are being given it and being fed it by these tech platforms and the algorithms. The algorithms are not designed to give a broad perspective on things because that doesn't keep you on the platform. The algorithms are designed to give you the things you like because they want you to stay on the platform more and more. When you're staying on the platform and using the platform more and more, they can advertise to you and they get more and more money. Just understand how that works. They're not designed to be propagators of free speech. They're struggling with it because they're being called out, but they're designed to keep you on the platform. It's a money-making enterprise. So there's a different motive for those platforms. They're not there to, to be able to do what. And this is what, they, you know, they got called out for a lot of this because they've been used by misinformation and um, bad actors, if you will, to be able to, to funnel information to more and more people uh, because, of it's, because of the 
the financial situation there. So that's the situation of inf information glut. Um, again, more information isn't going to fix those problems that have always been a part of humanity. Uh, those are things that are, are going to take different, different, different solutions. We can't process the information. It's too much. We've created what? We've created other technologies to process it for us. We've created these search engines that are supposed to be able to do it for us, that are supposed to give us what we want. But again, we know that those search engines are lined up and there are biases behind the search engines. If you search for a thing on, say, for example, how to train your dog, there's a billion answers. There's a billion web pages on that. So how do you find the one that's true or right or has the best, you know? Well, the search engine just gives it to you right on the first page. You know, nobody ever goes to the second page of Google. They stay on the first page. But that search engine is designed, and then there's things that that search engine leaves out. So if you don't, for example, code your article on dog training in a way that is SEO, meaning search engine optimized, friendly for search engines to look, the search engine will not find it and will not provide it for the user. Even though you may have the best method on dog training, if you don't write it in such a way that it's optimized for the search engine, it gets left out. And then you've got to ask the question on the value judgments. Are there human values written into the algorithms that prevent information from being seen because of a value bias um, that's a possibility and we do know that there were some value biases put into some of those um, search engines in the past to prevent certain things from being seen as an example uh, the censorship that took place on Twitter as a result of you know some of these things that came out politically um, that were thought to be fake news at the time, but were propagated as fake news by one side of the political spectrum and then turned out to be completely true and legitimate and they have to come back and walk it back. So, you know, those things of preventing people from seeing information, uh, you know, that changes society ultimately. That changes the dynamics of politics ultimately. And so you've got to ask the question, what's going on here and what are the deeper issues that are being uh, that are being addressed behind the scenes that we're not aware of. Let's not be foolish enough to think that that doesn't happen in our country. Let's not be foolish enough to think that we are not being propagandized by our own government for their own ends. I would encourage you to read a couple of books, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, to see how it is that a country can literally be changed by the ambition of a madman through the use of an incredible propaganda machine. You could also read um, the Gulag Archipelago to see what happened in Russia. You could also read, and I'm reading this now, Mao's Cultural Revolution to see what happened in China. And those same techniques and things that happened then, they're being utilized on us even today. It's happening in Russia. It's happening in Ukraine. It's happening here. Let's not be foolish enough to think that we're not in that same environment because we are. The question is, what can we do about it? What can we do about it? How can we address the situation of information glut? How can we live in a country where we are drowning in, in information overload? 
One thing you can do is this. Try to access information, only the information that you can or will act upon. A scholar said that the recipe for potency is only access information that you can or will act upon. Anything else is trivial. Anything else is just commanding and demanding your attention. If you can't act upon it, you're just consuming it to no end. And know this, that those platforms are designed to capture your attention and to keep you on the platform. They admitted it. They admitted that the like button gave you a dopamine hit. They admitted that when you click those things and they made that little chime noise, uh, that it gave you a psychological boost. And it was designed to keep you on the platform longer and longer and longer. Why? Because the longer you're on the platform, the more opportunity they have to advertise to you, the more money they make. That's how they were designed. So the answer to that is only access information that you can or will act upon. And then the second thing is this, understand the price that you're paying for your attention. What, what is that price? The price that you pay when you pay attention to something is that you can't pay attention to anything else at the same time, right? Your attention can only be directed in one place at a time. Um, you might say, oh, I can multitask or I can do multiple things. I want to say, you know, I think this, uh, the scientific literature on that shows that that's not true. And I can probably cite the papers for that if you're looking for that information. Um, but when you give your attention to something, you can't give your attention to something else. And so ask yourself the question, what is the return on your investment of your attention? What's the return when you have to give it to something? Um, what's be benefiting you the most in your life? And maybe it is, you know, maybe it is scrolling on Facebook, mindlessly scrolling through your newsfeed. That's a great return for you. That's entertainment for you. Okay. That's fair, and that's fine. Um, you know, you learn something when you listen to podcasts. When you give your attention to this podcast, you know, what's the return on your investment for listening to this podcast? It's a great question. Hopefully, it's valuable. Hopefully, it's something that's going to um, affect your life. Hopefully, it's something that's going to direct you towards rethinking and kind of reanalyzing what you're doing in your life and where you're spending your time and are you putting your priorities in the right place? <clears throat> and I'm not trying to be here and tell you where your priorities should be. What I am saying is make sure that you have your priorities where you want them to be. Make sure you have your priorities on the things that are important to you. Um, and you, you can only, you, you can, you've only got so much time in a day. And when you start to put your attention in certain places, it takes away from other things that you might want to be able to put your attention to in your life. And so, uh, access information that you can or will act upon, and then ask yourself the question, what is the return on your investment for investing your attention into whatever it may be at the time? Um, so those are two things. Hopefully they've helped you. Hope you learned something from this podcast. Uh, appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Do want to draw your attention to a resource that we have. You know, we have a website, mindforlife.org. You can check that out online. And as we go through the Google Analytics for that, you know, one of the pages on our website get always gets the most uh, traffic is on assertiveness. And it's called A Nice Person's Guide to Becoming More Assertive. It's an article I wrote that gives an 
a pretty good, it's 3,000 or some words long, a pretty good in-depth investigation to assertiveness for nice people. Nice people have a difficult time being assertive because they they want to be nice, right? They don't want anybody mad at them. And so uh, the article is about how you as a nice person can be more assertive and the reasons why you would want to be more assertive. And so we've created this resource. It's called um, How to Start a Difficult Conversation. You know, it's kind of like a nice person's guide to be able to how do you get into a conversation? Uh, what do you say in a conversation uh, when you know that you should say something or you know that you have to say something, but you want to do it in a way so you're not going to offend somebody and get into a big conflict and get into a big fight. So the resource is there. I'm going to make it available on the webpage for this podcast, and you'll be able to find that at mindforlife.org forward slash 062. Uh, there'll be a big yellow box that you can just click on click on and get that there. So uh, check that out. Check out the Nice Person's Guide to Becoming More Assertive if that's something that you struggle with there, and hopefully that can help you. Hey, if you've ever got any questions or you've got anything that you'd want addressed either on this podcast or in one of our articles, please go ahead and email me, jeff at mindforlife.org. Uh, we want to do our best to answer any questions that you have. But again, thanks again for taking the time today. Thanks for listening to the Mind for Life podcast. Hey, please subscribe. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can also subscribe and follow us on Spotify and I believe also on Google Podcasts. So uh, we're going to try to do a better job here of being more um, consistent with getting content out to you. Uh, Appreciate your time today. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.